0: Chapter Eighteen, Part One of Popular History of Ireland, Book Eleven by Thomas Darcy Magee, LIBREVOX.ORG. into the public domain. Administration of Lord Cornwallis before the Union. Nothing strengthens a dynasty, said the First Napoleon, more than an unsuccessful rebellion. The partial uprising of the Irish people in 1798 was a rebellion of this class and the use of such a failure, to an able and unscrupulous administration, was illustrated in the extinction of the ancient legislature of the kingdom, before the recurrence of the third anniversary of the insurrection. This project, the favorite and long-cherished design of Mr. Pitt, was cordially approved by his principal colleagues, the Duke of Portland, Lord Greenville, and Mr. Dundas. Indeed, it may be questioned whether it was not as much Lord Greenville's design as Pitt's, and as much George Third's personal object as that of any of his ministers. The old king's Irish policy was always of the most narrow and illiberal description. In his memorandum on the recall of Lord Fitzwilliam, he explains his views with the business-like brevity which characterized all his communications with his ministers, while he retained possession of his faculties. He was totally opposed to Lord Fitzwilliam's emancipation policy, which he thought adopted in implicit obedience to the heated imagination of Mr. Burke. To Lord Camden, his instructions were to support the old English interest as well as the Protestant religion, and to Lord Cornwallis that no further indulgence should be granted to Catholics, but that he should steadily pursue the object of effecting the union of Ireland and England. The new viceroy entered heartily into the views of his sovereign, though unwilling to exchange his English position as a cabinet minister and master general of ordnance for the troubled life of the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland he at length allowed himself to be persuaded into the acceptance of that office, with a view mainly to carrying the Union. He was ambitious to connect his name with that great imperial measure, so often projected but never formally proposed. If he could only succeed in incorporating the Irish with the British legislature, he declared he would feel satisfied to retire from all other public employments, that he would look on his days as finished, and his evening of ease and dignity fully earned. He was not wholly unacquainted with the kingdom against which he cherished these ulterior views for he had been nearly thirty years before when he fell under the lash of junius one of the vice-treasurers of ireland for the rest he was a man of great information tact and firmness indefatigable in business tolerant by temperament and conviction but both as a general and a politician it was his lot to be identified in india and in ireland with successes which might better have been failures, and in America with failures which were much more beneficial to mankind than his successes. In his new sphere of action his two principal agents were Lord Clare and Lord Castlereagh, both Irishmen; the Chancellor, the son of what in that country is called a spoiled priest, and the Secretary, the son of an ex-volunteer and member of Flood's Reformed Convention it is not possible to regard the conduct of these high officials in undermining and destroying the ancient national legislature of their own country in the same light as that of lord cornwallis or mr pitt or lord grenville it was but natural that as englishmen these ministers should consider the empire in the first place that they should desire to centralize all the resources and all the authority of both islands in london that to them the existence of an independent parliament at dublin with its ample control over the courts, the revenues, the defences, and the trade of that kingdom, should appear an obstacle and a hindrance to the unity of the imperial system. From their point of view they were quite right, and had they pursued their end, complete centralization, by honorable means, no stigma could attach to them even in the eyes of Irishmen, but with Lords Clare and Castlereagh the case was wholly different. Born in the land, deriving income as well as existence from the soil, ELECTED TO ITS PARLIAMENT BY THE CONFIDENCE OF THEIR COUNTRYMEN, ATTAINING TO POSTS OF HONOR IN CONSEQUENCE OF SUCH ELECTION, THAT THEY SHOULD VOLUNTARILY OFFER THEIR SERVICES TO ESTABLISH AN ALIEN AND A HOSTILE POLICY ON THE RUINS OF THEIR OWN NATIONAL CONSTITUTION, WHICH WITH ALL ITS DEFECTS WAS NATIONAL AND WAS corrigible. THIS BETRAYAL OF THEIR OWN AT THE DICTATE OF ANOTHER STATE WILL ALWAYS PLACE THE NAMES OF CLARE AND Castlereagh ON THE DETESTED LIST OF PUBLIC TRAITORS. Yet, though in such treason, united and identified, no two men could be more unlike in all other respects. Lord Clare was fiery, dogmatic, and uncompromising to the last degree, while Lord Castlereagh was stealthy, imperturbable, insidious, bland, and adroit. The Chancellor endeavoured to carry everything with a high hand, with a bold, defiant, confident swagger. The Secretary, on the contrary, trusted to management, expediency, and silent tenacity of purpose." The one had faith in violence, the other in corruption. They were no inapt personifications of the two chief agencies by which the Union was effected force and fraud. The Irish Parliament, which had been of necessity adjourned during the greater part of the time the insurrection lasted, assembled within a week of Lord Cornwallis's arrival. Both houses voted highly loyal addresses to the King and Lord Lieutenant, the latter seconded in the Commons by Charles Kendall Bush, the college companion of Wolfe Tone. A vote of one hundred thousand pounds to indemnify those who had suffered from the rebels, subsequently increased to above one million pounds, was passed una voce, another, placing on the Irish establishment certain English militia regiments, passed with equal promptitude. In July, five consecutive acts, a complete code of penalties and prescription, were introduced, and, after various debates and delays, received the royal sanction on the 6th of October, the last day of the session of 1798. These acts were, 1. The Amnesty Act, the exceptions to which were so numerous that few of those who took any active part in the rebellion were, according to the Cornwallis's correspondence, benefited by it. 2 an act of indemnity by which all magistrates who had exercised a vigor beyond the law against the rebels were protected from the legal consequences of such acts. 3. An act for attaining Lord Edward Fitzgerald, Mr. Harvey, and Mr. Grogan, against which Curran, taking his instructions from the grave, pleaded at the bar of the House of Lords, but pleaded in vain. This act was finally reversed by the Imperial Parliament in 1819. 4. An act forbidding communication between persons in Ireland and those enumerated in the banishment act, and making the return to Ireland, after a sentence of banishment by court martial, a transportable felony. five. An act to compel fifty one persons therein named to surrender before first of december seventeen ninety eight, under pain of high treason. Among the fifty one were the principal refugees at Paris and Hamburg, Tone, Luenis, Tandy, Dean Swift, Major Plunkett, Anthony McCann, Harvey Morris, etc. On the same day in which the session terminated, and the royal sanction was given to these acts, the name of Henry Grattan was, a significant coincidence, formally struck by the King's commands from the roll of the Irish Privy Council. This legislation of the session of 1798 was fatal to the Irish Parliament. The partisans of the Union, who had used the rebellion to discredit the Constitution, now used the Parliament to discredit itself under the influence of a fierce reactionary spirit, when all merciful and moderate counsels were denounced as treasonable, it was not difficult to procure the passage of sweeping measures of prescription. But with their passage vanished the former popularity of the domestic legislature. And what followed? The Constitution of 82 could only be upheld in the hearts of the people, and, with all its defects, it had been popular before the sudden spread of French revolutionary notions distracted and dissipated the public opinion, which had grown up within the era of independence. To make the once cherished authority, which liberated trade in 79, and half emancipated the Catholics in 93, the last executioner of the vengeance of the castle against the people, was to place a gulf between it and the affections of that people in the day of trial. To make the anti-unionists in Parliament, such as the Speaker, Sir Lawrence Parsons, Plunkett, Posenby, and Bush, personally responsible for this vindictive code, was to disarm them of the power, and almost of the right to call on the people whom they turned over, bound hand and foot, to the mercy of the minister in ninety-eight, to aid them against the machinations of that same minister in ninety-nine. The last months of the year were marked besides events already referred to, and by negotiations incessantly carried on, both in England and Ireland, in favour of the Union. Members of both houses were personally courted and canvassed by the Prime Minister, the Secretaries of State, the Viceroy, and the Irish Secretary. Titles, pensions, and offices were freely promised. Vast sums of secret service money, afterwards added as a charge to the public debt of Ireland, were remitted from Whitehall. An army of pamphleteers, marshalled by Under-Secretary Cook, and confidentially directed by the able but anti-national Bishop of Meath, Dr. O'Byrne, and by Lord Castlereagh personally, plied their pens in favour of the consolidation of the Empire. The Lord Chancellor, the Chief Secretary, and Mr. Beresford made journeys to England, to assist the Prime Minister with their local information, and to receive his imperial confidence in return. The Orangemen were neutralized by securing a majority of their leaders, the Catholics, by the establishment of familiar communication with the bishops. The Viceroy complimented Dr. Troy at Dublin, the Duke of Portland lavished personal attentions on Dr. Moylan in England. The Protestant clergy were satisfied with the assurance that the maintenance of their establishment would be made a fundamental article of the Union, while the Catholic bishops were given to understand that complete emancipation would be one of the first measures submitted to the imperial parliament. The oligarchy were to be indemnified for their boroughs, while the advocates of reform were shown how hopeless it was to expect a house constituted of their nominees ever to enlarge or amend its own exclusive constitution thus for every description of a people a particular set of appeals and arguments was found and for those who discarded the affectation of reasoning on the surrender of their national existence there were the more convincing arguments of titles employments and direct pecuniary purchase at the close of the year of the rebellion lord cornwallis was able to report to mr pitt that the prospects of carrying the measure were better than could have been expected and on this report he was authorized to open the matter formally to Parliament, in his speech at the opening of the following session. On the 22nd of January, 1799, the Irish legislature met under circumstances of great interest and excitement. The city of Dublin, always keenly alive to its metropolitan interests, sent its eager thousands by every avenue towards College Green, the viceroy went down to the houses with a more than ordinary guard, and being seated on the throne in the House of Lords, the commons were summoned to the bar. The house was considered a full one, two hundred and seventeen members being present. The viceregal speech congratulated both houses on the suppression of the late rebellion, on the defeat of Bompard's squadron, and the recent French victories of Lord Nelson. Then came, amid profound expectation, this concluding sentence, The unremitting industry, said the Viceroy, with which our enemies persevere in their avowed design of endeavouring to effect a separation of this kingdom from Great Britain, must have engaged your attention, and His Majesty commands me to express his anxious hope that this consideration, joined to the sentiment of mutual affection and common interest, may dispose the parliaments in both kingdoms to provide the most effectual means of maintaining and improving a connection essential to their common security, and of consolidating— as far as possible into one firm and lasting fabric the strength the power and the resources of the british empire on the autograph of the address re-echoing this sentiment which was carried by a large majority in the lords a debate ensued in the commons which lasted till one o'clock of the following day above twenty consecutive hours against the suggestion of a union spoke posenby parsons fitzgerald barrington plunkett lee O'Donnell and Bush. In its favour, Lord Castlereagh, the Knight of Kerry, Corry, Fox, Osborne, Duganen, and some other members little known. The galleries and lobbies were crowded all night by the first people of the city, of both sexes, and when the division was being taken, the most intense anxiety was manifested, within doors and without. At length the tellers made their report to the speaker, himself an ardent anti-unionist, and it was announced that the members were, for the address, one hundred and five, for the amendment, one hundred and six, so the paragraph in favour of consolidating the empire was lost by one vote. The remainder of the address, tainted with the association of the expunged paragraph, was barely carried by one hundred and seven to one hundred and five. Mr. Posenby had attempted to follow his victory by a solemn pledge binding the majority never again to entertain the question, but to this several members objected, and the motion was withdrawn. The ministry found some consolation in this withdrawal, which they characterized as a retreat after a victory, but to the public at large, unused to place much stress on the minor tactics of debate, nothing appeared but the broad general fact that the first overture for a union had been rejected. It was a day of immense rejoicing in Dublin. The leading anti-unionists were escorted in triumph to their homes, while the Unionists were protected by strong military escorts from the popular indignation, at night the city was illuminated, and the patrols were doubled as a protection to the obnoxious minority. End of Chapter 18. Part 1. Read by Sibella Denton. For more free audiobooks or to volunteer, please visit Librivox.org.